0: Go ahead and stand with me, if you would, as we read God's word together. <clears throat> there was a rich man, these are the words of Christ, by the way. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate lay a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longed he what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in hell where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. Because I am in agony in this fire. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these words as difficult as they are. I pray that you would teach us from them today. Um, And we thank you and praise you for victory over death through Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Today's message is entitled, Conquering Hell. Conquering Hell. Now, I'm not much of a hellfire and brimstone preacher, but at the same time, from time to time, as God's word uh, dictates, uh, I'm going to be sharing about this. I actually looked through my sermons to see the last time I preached on hell, and I'm sorry to say I couldn't find one. I know I've preached on it, but uh, just in case anybody ever criticizes me for not ever preaching on hell, well, here you go. (laughs) Why do you believe in hell? Or maybe the better question is, do you believe in hell? And by the way, I'm gonna start in hell, but we're gonna end up in heaven, amen? In fact, I started to call this the good news about hell, but that might sound difficult. So we're gonna start in hell, we're gonna end in heaven. Do you believe in hell? uh, Strangely, many professing Christians no longer believe in hell in our nation. In fact, many more Americans believe in heaven than they do in hell, which is very interesting. If anybody ever tells you they believe in heaven but not in hell, then ask them, where is Adolf Hitler? And then it gets awkward very quickly. Statistically, women are more likely to believe in hell than men. Also statistically, the richer you are, the more likely you don't believe in hell. Another fun fact, married people are more likely to believe in hell than unmarried people. (laughs) So today I want to share with you five important considerations about hell. Number one, hell is a biblical place. It is a biblical place. It is... Uh, described in the Bible as a destination of the unrepentant. In the passage that I read for you just a while ago, it was a parable by Jesus about two guys, one rich guy and one poor guy named Lazarus. And clearly Jesus indicates that there is literally a hell. It is a biblical place and that he was in literal torment. We'll talk about that in just a minute. Did you know there are over 162 references in the New Testament alone, which warns of hell? And over 70 of these references were uttered by Christ himself. In fact, Jesus spoke more about hell than any other person in the Bible. So clearly Jesus was not woke or politically correct. Uh, It is not the politically correct or the woke thing to say. Uh, It is our pressure in this world to give only good news and no bad news at all but it is a biblical place according to the to the word of god the passage again that i just shared which by the way was um uh oh, actually let, let me share this passage i haven't actually shared this matthew chapter 5 verse 29 now This passage is from the Sermon on the Mount. This is early in the ministry of Jesus. And this sermon, and I've shared with you when I preached over the Sermon on the Mount before, an entire series was a shocking sermon. Now, to you and I, the Sermon on the Mount, we've heard it so many times. I don't know if you've read it lately, but there are parts of that sermon will just shock you. And this is part of it. I'm sure everybody hearing it that day were stunned by what he's about to say. Matthew 5:29. he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. Oh, my, it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, let me tell you what he means from this and what he doesn't mean. Obviously, he's not telling you that if you, do, if you see something sinful that you're supposed to poke your eyes out. If he did, then we would all be blind. And obviously he's not telling us to cut our hand off every time we do something wrong because none of us would have any hands. So put your pocket knives up. That's not what he means. But he is saying this, hell is a very real place and Jesus is concerned about us, not, uh, about us ending up there. He doesn't want us to go there. He so desperately does not want us to go to hell that he was willing to die for us on the cross so that we wouldn't go there. So it's really important to him. And he is trying to get across to everybody that's listening to him, the disciples on the mountainside that day and the thousands that are listening on, on the other side of the disciples. And this huge crowd has gathered and he's trying to pour out his heart here desperately saying, don't, I don't want you to go there. Do what you need to do. Understand that you must take sin seriously. And so many of them were not. Um, What a powerful passage. Ted Turner, if you remember him, he is still alive, the founder of Turner Broadcasting Company, TBS, TNT, and CNN, once blasted the Christian faith many years ago at a speech to the National Press Club. So this was a speech before a whole bunch of journalists. He said this, Remember, heaven is going to be perfect, and I don't really want to be there. Ted Turner said that, not me. He says, heaven is gonna be perfect and I don't really wanna be there. Those of us uh, that go to hell, which is most of us in this room, most journalists certainly are going there, he said. But he's probably right. But when we get there, we'll have a chance to, when we get to hell, he said, we will have a chance to make things better because hell is supposed to be a mess. And heaven is perfect. Who wants to go to a place that's perfect? Boring, 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 he says. Wow, not a theologian, Ted Turner, bless his heart. Also in late 1989, Turner told the Dallas Morning News that, quote, Christianity is a religion for losers, end quote. Christ died on the cross, but Mr. Turner said he shouldn't have bothered. He said, I don't want anybody dying for me. Interestingly, Ted Turner has greatly softened his tone as he has aged. Once a staunch atheist, saying that there is no God, then he moved to, for many years, being an agnostic, admitting maybe there is a God and maybe there's not a God. And now at age 83, he says he prays for his sick friends. Now, he's not a believer in Christ, but you do see this wisdom that is slowly getting through even to Ted Turner, as his destiny eternally gets closer and closer. So number one, hell is a biblical place. Secondly, it's a literal place. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 47, this is Jesus himself speaking again. He says, once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. By the way, if you've gone fishing very much in your life, as I have, you know what he's talking about. The bad fish are the fish I catch. They're about this long. (laughs) Most people can use them for for a bait. Uh, And then there are the good fish, the big fish, the, the kind of fish that you like to catch. I prefer crappie. I love the taste of crappie. I guess I love it. I haven't had one so long. I barely remember what it tastes like. But some fish are preferable and some are not good for anything. They're too small or they're the wrong kind. You end up catching that alligator gar or that carp. And that's just not good fish there. So he says, this is how it is in verse 49. At the end of the age, the angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of the teeth. So God is the judge, but here he says, interestingly, the angels will have this function at the end of the age. They will, like a fisherman, goes through his fish and finds the good one from the bad ones. Uh, He says the angels will sift those who are believers in Christ and those who are not, and those who are not will be put into the fiery furnace. I have... Heard many testimonies over the years of people who have had what we call a near death experience. And perhaps you have heard people like that as well. Some of those testimonies are very uh, believable and some of them are not. Now, if somebody comes and tells you they had a near death experience and they went to visit heaven. I would listen very closely to their testimony and put it up against God's Word. If they say something in the testimony that is contrary to Scripture, I can already tell you that's a false testimony. And I've learned over the years that every nut and wacko out there has had a near-death experience. They write a book about it and make a lot of money. So be careful. Use your discernment there. But at the same time, I cannot discount every testimony as valid or invalid because some people have had remarkable testimonies. We had one man here that gave a testimony some years ago, wrote a book called 90 90 Minutes in Heaven. He was a Southern Baptist minister and uh, a grandfather and we found him to be quite sincere in his testimony about what he experienced during that hour and a half that he was crushed to death and, and broke every bone in his body. I mean, just squished him like a grape. And how he experienced the, the presence of God after or during that time period. But there's another interesting testimony that I read about this week. It's a man named Dr. Maurice Rawlings. And some of you who have been around a while, might know who that is. He was an American cardiologist and author. Very well-educated, a very learned man. He served during World War II in the U.S. Navy. During the Korean War, he was in the U.S. Army. Rowlings was a doctor uh, uh, for President Eisenhower and the Joint Chiefs of Staff at the time. He was an assistant clinical professor of medicine at the University of Tennessee. Dr. Rowlings was also an atheist who simply did not believe in the existence of God and certainly did not believe in a heaven or a hell Until one night, he experienced a near-death experience. But it wasn't his experience. It was the experience of one of his patients that dropped dead right in front of him. And the near-death experience was an experience where the guy went to heaven. This particular guy went to hell. And every time he brought him back, the guy started screaming. Watch this. This is an actual uh, um, quote uh, from his own testimony. Watch this clip.
1: I didn't believe in God, let alone an afterlife. But that belief quickly changed one evening in 1977. I was monitoring a patient of mine, a guy aged 40, whilst he carried out an ECG stress test. There and then, in my office, he had a cardiac arrest and dropped dead to the floor. Three nurses rushed in and began CPR, whilst I started external heart massage, but it wouldn't maintain its own beat. I had to insert a pacemaker wire down through the large vein, the patient began coming to. But whenever I reached for instruments or interrupted chest compressions, he would lose consciousness again, stop breathing, and die one more time. But the terrifying thing was this: each time he came around and began respiration, he would scream, "I'm in hell!" I'm in and help. plead with me not to quit. This literally scared the hell out of me. Every time I quit, I was sending him back there he looked petrified. After this happened a few times, I dismissed his complaint and told him to keep his hell to himself until I was finished fitting the pacemaker. But the man was beyond serious. How do I stay out of hell? Pray for me. Pray for him? I thought. I was a doctor, not a preacher. Pray for me. He repeated. It was a dying man's request. As I continued working, I took my mind back to Sunday school and had the man repeat a prayer asking Jesus to save him and turn his life around. It wasn't complicated. And with that, his condition stabilized. I asked the patient a couple of days later to explain what he saw in hell. But he remembered nothing, as if it was wiped from his memory. He did, however, remember everything after the prayer. Seeing us work on his body, a pleasurable experience of brilliant light lush vegetation in a narrow valley and meeting his deceased family his stepmother and birth mother who had died when he was just 15 months old the whole experience changed everything i ever believed
0: now a couple of things from that first of all um even though he wasn't a believer he remembered what his Sunday school teacher taught him when he was a kid. So Sunday school teachers, don't ever underestimate the importance and the power of teaching your students things that they will remember all of their life. Sooner or later, God will speak to them, the Holy Spirit will convict them, and they'll remember what you taught them. And so what you do is so, so very important. The second thing I wanna notice from that is, folks, if, you, if your plan for salvation is to wait until somebody's doing heart compressions on you, you're pushing it, okay? You may or may not get the opportunity, but that's an interesting testimony. And what I found interesting wasn't that the guy went to heaven and had a near-death experience there. It was the fact that he started in hell and uh he was horrified and that terrified the doctor as well so hell is a literal place it's also a just place it's a biblical place it's a literal place and it is a just place that is hell is a place of justice no more and no less Uh, don't make hell more than it is or less than it is it is a just place now when i say it's a place of justice It is a bad place, and first and foremost, it is a place of separation from God because justice says we don't get to be with God because of the sin that's in our life. God is holy, and we are not holy, and we have done good things in our life, but we've also done bad things in our life. And the bad things that we do in our life, the Bible calls sin, and the result of sin is that we are eternally separated from God. That's what the Bible teaches, and that's what I believe because I believe the Bible is true. Now, by the way, God doesn't send you to hell. We send us to hell. Uh, we send ourselves to the place of justice that is called hell. And we send ourselves to the place of justice because of the things that we do and say that are falling short of God's glory. Let me put it this way. If you were to go out and murder somebody this week and you get caught, and I hope, if you, I hope you don't murder anybody, but if you do murder somebody and you get caught, I hope you get caught, they'll send you to, to uh, a trial You'll have an attorney there. There will be a judge and there will be a jury and they'll probably convict you if there's good evidence and if you're guilty uh, and you'll go to jail. Now, when you're in jail, don't say that sorry judge who sent me to prison or that sorry jury who made that decision or my lawyer wasn't good enough or my lawyer was a crook or whatever. It's not your lawyer's fault. It's not the judge's fault. It's not the jury's fault. It's your fault because you murdered somebody. So if you die in your sins, it's not the fault of God. God didn't send you there, you sent you there. If I go to hell, it's my fault. I sent myself there because of my unrepentant sin. It's a just place. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, right near the end of the Bible, says this. As John is talking about this wonderful event, he's going to be going there in the next verses uh, uh, describing heaven. But in chapter 20, verse 11, he says this. Revelation twenty eleven. there we go. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which was the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. Now notice there's book singular and books plural. And here he says, the people, the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books, plural. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged, here's the justice, according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book, singular, the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So hell is a place where you get what you deserve, no more and no less. And in this vivid description of Revelation, it says there are going to be multiple books and these books contain everything, they symbolize everything that you've done, both good and bad in your life. It is the evidence that's presented at a trial to determine your level of guilt. In addition to those books of justice, there is another book. It is the book of mercy. It's called the book of life or the Lamb's book of life is described in Revelation. It's the book that contains, again, this is symbolic. It is the book that contains the name that everyone who has surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean you're a rich person or a poor person. It doesn't mean you're a great person or a good person. It means that you are a saved or redeemed person. Person who have simply come to this place in your life where you've acknowledged the lordship of Christ. And if your name is in that book, and only if your name in that, is in that book, will you be given forgiveness and entrance into heaven. Also, hell is an eternal place. It's an eternal place. In Matthew chapter five, 25, excuse me, verse 40, Jesus is speaking again. And he says, the king will reply, I tell you the truth, First of all, I want you to notice the word eternal in there. It speaks of the eternal fire. The Roman Catholic Church has a doctrine about a place called purgatory. Uh, We don't uh, teach that. Uh, We don't see a biblical precedent for it here, but purgatory is a doctrine of a temporary place. It is a place of punishment, but it is not eternal. In fact, you go to purgatory, my brother is Roman Catholic, and he says to me, if you wake up and you realize you're in purgatory, even though you're in torment, it's a good thing. It's a good day, because if you're in purgatory, that means eventually you'll get to go to heaven, uh, because if you wake up and you're not in purgatory, that means you're in hell. So you, you long for purgatory if you're a Roman Catholic, but we don't teach that here, but it is interesting that that belief system that is you, you'll go to this temporary place called purgatory. Hell is not a temporary place. It is an eternal place. Again, that is justice. You can't earn your way to heaven once you die. And uh, so it is a permanent place. Hell is also not the only place. There is a better place than hell. Um, I was preparing for a sermon series a few years ago on a new uh, series video series that was coming out called The Chosen. It, m- m- this is back when it was brand new. And I think I got through a message or two out of that series when uh, the the government shut us all down because of a pandemic, do you remember that? It was a lot of fun, wasn't it? And so we we didn't for a couple of months we didn't get to go to church, and so we did video series uh, each week. We did a, a worship video, and we started live streaming uh, at that point. And so uh, one of the one of the sermons that I preached and live streamed was on. A a scene from The Chosen where Jesus is speaking with Nicodemus. It's one of the greatest scenes ever put to film, maybe the best scene ever put to film. It is just beautiful. And I showed that to you or streamed that to you (laughs) during the pandemic, but I want to show you a clip. I don't have time to show you the whole scene, but I want to show you a clip from that scene. Nicodemus is a Pharisee, but he is interested in Jesus, and he actually meets with Jesus at night alone to ask Jesus some questions, and Jesus seeks to teach Nicodemus about spiritual rebirth. Watch this scene.
2: Truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. That part of you, that, is what must be reborn to a new life. How can these things be? Ah. A teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things. Huh? I'm trying, Rabbi. I know, I know. you hear this? What? Listen. What do you hear? The wind. How do you know it's the wind? Because I can feel it. I hear its sound. Do you know where it comes from? No. Or do you know where it's going? No. That's what it is, to be born again of the spirit. The spirit may work in a way that is a mystery to you. And while you cannot see the spirit, you can recognize his effect. Mind is consumed with thoughts of what a stir these words would cause among the teachers of the law. Yes. And I do not expect otherwise. I speak of what I know and have seen, and it has not been received by the religious leaders. It is hard to receive. So if I have told you of earthly things, And you do not believe? How can I tell you heavenly things? I believe your words. I just fear you may not have a chance to speak many more of them before you are silenced. I have come to do more than speak words, Nicodemus. More miracles? Yes. But even more than that, do you remember when the children of Israel complained against God and against Moses in the wilderness of Paran? Yes they wanted to return to Egypt and they cursed the manna that God sent them. And then? They were bitten by serpents and they were dying. But? But God made a way for them to be healed. Moses lifted the bronze serpent in the desert and people only needed to look at it. So will the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Our people are not dying from snake bites. They're dying from taxation and oppression. I'm sorry to disappoint you. But I did not come to deliver the people from Rome. And from what? From sin. From spiritual death. God loves the world in this way. That he gave his only son. And whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So this has nothing to do with wrong. It's all about sin. God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, Nicodemus. He sent him to save it through him. It's as simple as Moses' serpent on the pole. Whoever believes in him will not be condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned.
0: All right. You know, he makes an important point there. It's a beautiful passage in the Bible and a beautiful scene. But the first century Jews were expecting and longing for a Messiah that would deliver them from the government, from the Romans. They were under Roman oppression. And they were under Roman oppression. The Romans were horrible. There's no question. They were, they were awful. Terrible. It was a horrible, awful political party. in a government that was oppressing them. And so the Jews were longing for somebody with military might to deliver them. And Jesus had to constantly correct them. Even the the disciples themselves longed for him to deliver them in a military coup against the Romans. And Jesus would teach them and say, no, that's not what the problem is. I want so bad to blame all of our problems in our lives on the Democrats because they're an easy target. I love them for that, but you know what? Jesus didn't come to deliver you from Democrats or Republicans or independents. Jesus didn't even come to deliver you from Bernie Sanders. He came to deliver you from sin. And it is only through him that we can have hope of eternal life, hope of forgiveness, hope of joy, and hope of peace. Jesus loves you so much that he died for you so that you would get that point, that you, you, you realize you need a Savior. Listen, I need a Savior. I need to be saved because I'm a sinner just like you. And it is the grace of God through Jesus for which we can be saved. God doesn't want you to go to hell. I mean, he'll allow you to go to hell. It's your choice, and it is my choice to continue down that path of destruction, that path of sin, but he doesn't want that for you. God made you because he loves you, and he certainly doesn't want you and I to die in our sins. So he sent his one and only son to die in our place. That beautiful verse. In that context of how it actually happened for God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Do you know that heaven is your destiny today for sure? You can. Would you pray with me? Bow your heads. Lord, as we come to you this morning, I pray through your spirit that you would give us that assurance and forgive us for we have had designs on Jesus. We've had false expectations, hoping he will deliver us from this or deliver us from that. Now you are a sovereign God and we believe that history will follow after your sovereign hand and we can trust our world and even our politics in your hands. Not only this government, but every government in the world is under your authority. Even in Russia, Ukraine, North Korea, China, and everywhere else, they're all under your authority. Jesus didn't come to deliver us from politics. He came to deliver us from our own sin. And the problem that we have in our life is more than economic, it's more than political, It is deeply personal. So Father, I pray if there's one here this morning who has not simply surrendered their life to Jesus, not an easy thing, but it is simple. Your word tells us what we must do to be saved. It's not any work or deed that we do. It is simply accepting that free gift of salvation from Jesus Christ, acknowledging that he died in our place, that is the result of our sin, is death. And so he died in our place and believing in faith in the resurrection and surrendering surrendering ourselves to the lordship of Jesus. He is our Lord. And we must acknowledge that. That means he calls the shots in our life from now on. Father, if there's one who has not surrendered their life to Christ, may they pray right now, dear Lord, I believe that I am a sinner and I need a Savior. I believe you came to this world, lived a perfect life, and died on the cross for my sake and for my sins in my place so that I can have forgiveness. Lord, I believe in faith that in three days you came back to life. And that you're alive today. Come into my life. I surrender myself to you. I don't call the shots in my life anymore. You do. Wherever you tell me to go, whatever you tell me to do, I'll do that, I surrender to you. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me. If you prayed that prayer, I want you to know, if you didn't mean it, it's just words. There's no magic formula in the Bible. It's a matter of surrender. But if you did mean it, and you're willing to surrender your life, You've made that vow right here, right now, for the rest of your life. I surrender my life to Jesus, and I believe in the resurrection. I want you to know salvation has come to your life today. Now, the first thing that Jesus did, He said, the first thing He wants us to do was to confess Him before others. That's why we ask people to come down the aisle. You don't have to make a speech or anything like that. Just come down and say, "Pastor, I gave my life to Jesus just now." I surrender to him. If you're willing to do that, Jesus said it this way, if you'll confess me before others, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. And it's not anything that you're doing. It is the mercy of God through Jesus. But he does want you to make that public. Would you be willing to come down and just say, Pastor, I prayed that prayer. I gave my life to Jesus. this morning. I surrender to him. Would you be willing to do that? No one's looking around. Would you stand as you pray? It may be God is calling you or your family to simply come and join First Baptist Church. You're looking for a church home. Or you want to come and kneel and pray for somebody. It may be a family member that you love dearly and you don't want them to die in their sins and go to judgment. And you want to lift them up. Listen, the Holy Spirit is powerful. If the Holy Spirit can convict Ted Turner, it can he can convict your loved one. might want to just come down and pray for your loved one or maybe a classmate or fellow worker someone that you know if god is calling right now here's your opportunity as we pray